Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, this is Kennard Brown speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Today is May fifteenth, two 2010. I want to talk about, before I get into the Bible study about the last great day or the eighth day, I want to talk about a significant event in world history that's occurring right before our very eyes. Uh, this is an article from the New York Times. So when you're talk, talking about the New York Times, you're talking about a reputable uh, source in reference to um, any type of news, in particular world news. And this article is dated May 8, 2010. This article is by Nelson D. Schwartz and Eric Dash. And the title of the article is Greek Debt Woes Ripple Outward from Asia to the United States. Uh, states here that the fear that began in Athens raced through Europe and finally shook the stock market in the United States is now affecting the broader global economy from the ability of Asian corporations to raise money to the outlook for money market funds where American savers parked their cash. What was once a local worry about the debt burden of one of Europe's smallest economies has quickly gone global. Already, jittery investors have forced Brazil to scale back bond sales as interest rates soared and caused currencies in Asia like the Korean won to weaken. Ten companies around the world that had planned to issue stock delayed their offerings the most in a single week since October 2008. Now, this is a significant statement. The increase global anxiety threatens to slow the recovery in the United States, where job growth has finally picked up after the deepest recession I call it a depression, but they want to deceive people and call it recession. Uh, since the Great Depression, it could also inhibit consumer spending as stock portfolios shrink and loans are harder to come by. It's not just a European problem. It's the U.S., Japan, and the U.K. right now, says Ian Kelson, a bond fund manager in London. It's across the board. The crisis is so perilous for Europe that the leaders of the 16 countries that use the euro worked into the early morning Saturday on a proposal to create a so-called stabilization mechanism intended to reassure the markets. On Sunday, finance ministers from all 27 European states are expected to gather in Brussels to discuss and possibly approve the proposal they did. It's going to be close to $1 trillion that they're supposed to pump back into um, the European economy. As I explained to you last week, all they're doing is printing money, uh, fiat money, that's not backed by uh, any type of silver and gold. And all it's going to do is drive prices up because you're, you're increasing inflation. When you increase inflation, you drive prices up. And that's the simplest way I can explain that uh, for those that don't have a background in um, 
economics. So anyway, it says right here, the mechanism would probably be a way for the states to guarantee loans taken out by the European Commission, the bloc's executive body, to support ailing economies. European leaders, including the French president, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, or Nicolas Sarkozy, said Saturday morning that the union should be ready to activate the mechanism by Monday morning if needed, and they did. They've already done that. But I want to highlight some more uh, key statements here. I want to read this whole article here. It says, Greece may just be an early warning signal. It says the U.S. is a long way. Well, this is one opinion. It says that the U.S. is a long way from being where Greece is, but the developed world has been living beyond its means and is now being called to account. It says, while the immediate causes for worry are Greece's ballooning budget deficit and the risk that other fragile countries like Spain and Portugal might default, the turmoil also exposed deeper fears that government borrowing in bigger nations like Britain, Germany, and even the U.S. is unsustainable. And I can tell you that it is sustainable. Our total debt since the days of the Vietnam War uh, is, is, is approximately $79 trillion. You'll never hear this hardly from any of the, the main media outlets. When I talk about media outlets, I'm talking about the ones that most people are familiar with, CNN, Fox, um, ABC, NBC, CBS. That's what I'm talking about. Even the New York Times told them, even though they do have um, enlightening articles uh, sometime, like the one I'm reading right now. But basically, the elite don't want people to know what's really going on. And what's really going on, ladies and gentlemen, is the destruction of our country. And what they're doing right now is causing this country to be in so much debt that none of us, even if they took all our money for income taxes, it would be totally impossible, even on that end, to be able to solve our crisis right now. The solution, of course, is to obey God's principles, which is found in Romans 13, verse 8, when it says, Oh, no man, anything but love. We need to eliminate our debt. But nobody wants to eliminate their debt hardly in this country. Uh, I think a few people do, but the majority don't, because we want to we wanna live uh, comfortably. We want to just have our toys and, and have our pleasure and entertainment. And we can't do that. We can't live like that. We have to care about other people and their needs and their wants. Former presidential candidate John Edwards stated that we would need at least $20 billion, that's what it would be, $20 billion a year to be able to solve the poverty uh, problem in this country. We have over 39 million people now that are dependent on food stamps, and that's equivalent at almost uh, the same as the number of poor in this country, which is over 37 million people right now. Usually people that are poor, they're on food stamps. So we have a tremendous problem here in this country. Not one person, not one person in this country should be in poverty if they want to work. And it's just no excuse that anyone that wants to work needs to be on food stamps and receive unemployment checks. As much money, we have the most billionaires in this country. We have Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Uh, if you add both their net worths together, it's at least uh, close to $120, $130 billion. That's what it would be. So Warren Buffett and Bill Gates could help solve the poverty problem in this country. All they got to do is dish out $10 billion each, which they have. But they're not willing to do that. They're willing to continue to to get more and more and more, just like the, the rich fool and, and Luke, Chapter 12, continue to, 
to get more. I'm not calling them rich fools, but I'm just saying that that example in Luke chapter 12 of the rich fool, what he wanted to do is just continue to gather up all his um, riches, and he didn't think about anybody but himself. He just stored it up. Now, I'm not saying that Warren Buffett or, or, or Bill Gates don't give. What I'm saying is that they need to give more and help 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 uh, this country and and uh, give more. I mean, they can they can definitely give. Uh, if I had the money, I would do it. I would try to solve poverty in this country. I don't have it, but they do. So that's the only point that I'm making there. So anyway, um, and it says right here in this article, it says if the anxiety spreads, American banks could return to the posture they adopted after the collapse of Lehman Brothers in the fall of 2008 when they cut back sharply on mortgages, auto financing, credit card lending, and small business loans. That can stymie growth or put a delay uh, on job growth and halt the recovery now gaining traction, which, the, the listen, folks, our unemployment, our real unemployment rate is around 22%. All right, uh, they, they say it's 9.9%, but you have to include the people that have been unemployed for a long time aren't looking for employment, and those who are uh, not even optimistic about looking for a job. And you do all that, include that in there, the real unemployment statistic is close to 22%. So, um, again, the, the media has failed to, and is failing, to tell people the real truth about what's really uh, going on in this country. And we we need to um, be aware of that. And it says some com- American companies are facing higher costs to finance their debt while big exporters are seeing their edge over European rivals shrink as the dollar strengthens. Riskier assets like stocks are suddenly out of favor, while cash has streamed into the safest of all investments, gold. So just as Greece is being forced to pay more to borrow, more risky American companies are being forced to pay up too. Some issuers of new junk bonds in the consumer sector are likely to have to pay roughly 9% on new bonds, up from 8.5% before this week's volatility. Says Kevin Cassidy, senior credit officer with credit officer rather with Moody's. This week's volatility says to be sure, not all of the consequences are negative. It says though the situation is perilous for Europe, the United States economy does still enjoy some favorable tailwinds. Interest rates have dropped, benefiting home buyers seeking mortgages. And other borrowers' new data released Friday showed the economy added. 290,000 jobs in April, but there's over 7 or 8 million people that's unemployed right now in this country. Just adding 290,000 jobs is not going to solve the problem. They act like that's something to really be cheering about, but we need to do a whole lot more than that. It says overall, the United States banks have $3.6 trillion in exposure to European banks, according to the Bank for International Settlements. This includes more than a trillion dollars in loans to France and Germany and nearly $200 billion to Spain. So this, this is, this is um, a real serious problem here. It says, uncertainty about the stability of assets and money market funds signaled a tipping point that accelerated a downward spiral of the credit crisis in 2008 and ultimately prompted banks to briefly halt lending to one another. It says, now as Europe teeters, the dangers to the American economy and a broader financial system are becoming increasingly evident. It seems like only yesterday that European policymakers were gleefully watching the U.S. get its economic uh, advantage, not appreciating the massive tidal wave coming at them across the Atlantic, said Kenneth Rogoff, a Harvard professor of international finance, who also served as the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund. We should not make the same mistake. 
Well, it looks like uh, unless there's some repenting and some serious changes here that the mistake will be made, and we're going to go see what's going on in Greece right now could happen in, in this country, as I explained last week. They have tapped into government pensions of government employees there in Greece, and they, of course, have increased taxes. And that is going to have to probably happen here in this country uh, for us to be able to survive as a nation here in the next few years because this government is not willing to cut debt. They're not willing to do that. And if they refuse to do that, then we're going to have serious problems. So, uh, you know, prophecy is being fulfilled here, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just read this prophecy again in Revelation here because this seal, it hasn't been... If it hasn't been removed, it's getting ready to be removed. Uh, in Revelation chapter 6, this is where we are in prophecy here. It says um, in verse 6, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see that you hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened, verse 5 rather, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a bear of balances in his hand. So that's symbolizing the uh, economy, or economics. Verse 6, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou that thou not hurt the oil and the wine. That's talking about inflation, and that's what's going on right now, ladies and gentlemen. So we need to, to pay close attention to these things, and we need to uh, watch as... Uh, Yeshua told us to do do so in Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verse 36, he states, uh, Watch you therefore and pray. Well, actually, let me go before that. Verse 34, And take heed to yourselves that not at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, partying, and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that you uh, don't come across the day unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth. Watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it tells us to be awake. And being awake means you need to keep up with what's going on in the world. You know, that's too many so-called Christians and messianics, even, unfortunately, that don't pay attention to the news like they should. I know some do, but, but some don't. And, and they need to not be afraid of the news, and they need to, to get back to what... Uh, the Apostle Paul stated here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, But at the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly, they knew perfectly, that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when you shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail, upon a woman with child, and, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Here we go. We're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. So it, it shouldn't catch you. I know it's not going to catch me by surprise. I know what's going down. And I tell you each and every week, or I'm going to be anyway, following this program, what to look for and the type of news you need to be looking at so you can keep uh, stay abreast of what's going on so that when these things are happening, you're not going to be a surprise and you'll be able to be prepared to, to protect yourself and to protect your family. And I'm talking spiritually first, but, of course, physically as well. Verse 4, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. Verse 5, You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not in the night, nor of darkness. 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. And most people are sleeping right now, uh, spiritually. But let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us 
who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourself together and edify yourself, even as also you do. All right, so that that's what we need to be doing. We need to be keep abreast or be informed of what's going on in the world. And again, I'm going to, starting next week, start going over things because things are just like the, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but there's a great oil spill here in the Gulf. Now, also, you can check AccuWeather for verification of this, but one of the uh, weathermen, um, they predicted that this could be one of the worst hurricane seasons that we've ever had. Uh, they have predicted 16 storms. And, and it's really curious that these storms, these hurricanes, occur around the the fall feast, which is a time of judgment. So, and then it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to um, solve this problem with the oil spilling in the Gulf anytime soon. So that's going to be a combination that's not going to be very good, the combination of hurricanes or uh, forming along the Gulf and going to New Orleans and and uh, those other uh, states there around the Gulf. So we need to be praying for God to have his mercy, but again, we need to be praying that God does what he has to do to wake us up, uh, but with mercy as well. But things are heating up, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, we need to, uh, we are the generation that um, the Bible talks about when uh, the Messiah will appear. So we need to, to wake up here, and we need to be prepared for a lot of bad things that are going to happen. So anyway, I'll get into that next week. Let's uh, focus on the topic of this Bible study, which is what is the last great day or the eighth day. And as I've been telling you every week, the holy days of Elohim, or God, that's another name for God, Elohim, ultimately picture the salvation work of the Messiah, or Christ. That's the Greek, Christ, Hebrews, Messiah. The Passover, the first and seventh days of unleavened bread and Shavuot, have already been fulfilled by the Messiah. There is a significant amount of time between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. And I'm going to go into more detail about this leading up to the last great day, because all these these holy days uh, lead up to the last great day, which I'm going to explain to you represents perfection that there will be no more death, no more sin. Everyone's going to be happy, no more pain. And God the Father himself will come down and bring heaven down to earth and will dwell among us. That's what the eighth day represents, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm going to go into detail about that. But anyway, let's understand. Let's understand this, this time period between the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah. Now let's turn to Luke 4, verse 18 and 19. Luke 4, verse uh, 18 and 19. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he opened up the book of Isaiah, and this is found in Isaiah 61, verse 1, if any Jews that are listening to me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Why did he, how come he said preach the gospel to anyone? How come he, he said to the poor? Well, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to, I'm going to explain the reason why he stated that he's going to preach the good news to the poor first. Okay. Um, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. 
Now, that's interesting because he stopped, and he didn't read the rest of it. But what he was talking about was his his um, work that he was going to do during the the, uh, the first time of his coming, which is represented by the, the uh, spring festivals. Isaiah chapter 61. And in verse 2, it says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. Now, he didn't read that. The day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Okay, so the day of vengeance, that has everything to do with the festival of tabernacles, Yom Teruah, all the way down to um, the, oh, wait a minute, the festival of trumpets, Yom Teruah, all the way down to Sukkot, which culminates in, of course, the eighth day or the last great day. So he didn't read that because it wasn't his time to do that, to, to do the day of vengeance, okay? And to comfort all that more. And he's going to do that when he comes back. So what I wanted to explain, let me look something up here. If I can do it. Okay, so let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Starting in verse 35. It says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So um, the focus is on the harvest, which begins in the springtime. Luke chapter 10. Starting in verse 2, Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray you therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Okay. And then he it goes and gives him responsibilities to assist him with the harvesting, which, again, begins in the spring. And in the fall, you gather up all your harvest for the winter. So I'm just trying to give you a picture of that. John chapter 4, John chapter 4, starting in verse 35, says, Say not ye there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap, which means to gather up the uh, what you sowed, 
that wherein you bestowed no labor. So he's saying that they didn't do the work, but he still wants them to to uh, gather up the uh, what uh, the growing of that work. Uh, other men labored, and you entered into their labors. Okay, so he's just making a point there about the harvesting again. And then Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28, beginning uh, in verse 19, Go you therefore and teach all nations, that means everybody, all of mankind, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, and he means all things, whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world, at the end of this civilization. So, um, again, that's a part of the harvesting that he's talking about here in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6, says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the, the Father has put in his own power. Now, he, he said that it's not for them to know. Verse 8, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, which is the West Bank today, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So again, this is the, the harvesting work that the Messiah is doing even now through his servants, and it started in the first century. Now, if you look, if you look at Leviticus chapter 23. Let's turn there. Leviticus chapter 23. And verse 10. Speaking unto the children of Israel, saying to them, When you come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, which begins in the spring, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest. This was a barley sheaf. And he shall wave the sheep before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after Shabbat, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheep a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof shall be two-tenths of a fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for the sweet savor. And a drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until... The selfsame day that you have brought an offering unto the Lord, it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. And then he says, you shall count until you tomorrow after the, the Sabbath, which is on a Sunday. From that day you brought the sheaf and the waver offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even to tomorrow after the seventh Sabbath, you shall number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. You shall bring out of your habitation two wave loaves of two-tenths deals, and they shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And then uh, it talks about the other sacrifices. and But I want to get to verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, and the reaping begins during the spring, and it ends uh, during uh, the fall festivals where everything is gathered and, and put into their barns for the, for the winter back then. All right, and... When you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field. When you reap, neither shall thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. 
Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So in verse 22, that really symbolizes the work of God as which the empowering of his servants through the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, Shavuot, that happened. And then he told them right after that to do, to go and preach to those in Jerusalem, uh, in Judea, Samaria, and, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So you can see the symbolism here, the prophetic symbolism that's going on here in Leviticus 23 when you compare it to Acts. They receive um, the Holy Spirit, and then after that they started preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that's what's going on right now, which is symbolized by verse 22 here. And then in verse 23, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Shabbat, a memorial, blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no servile or normal work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Then also in the tenth day, you have the Day of Atonement, when you don't eat uh, for 24 hours. Don't drink, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And I want to, well, I'll go, I'll go to that part here in a minute. But anyway, let's let's break this down further when I'm trying to explain to you here. Again, there's a significant amount of time between Shavuot and Yom Tur, and there's a specific reason for this to help you to understand that the Messiah was going to come two times. Now, the spring festival symbolized the first coming of the Messiah, and this can be interpreted correctly as being the latter rain, the latter rain, agriculturally, the latter rain. The latter rain symbolizes the work of the Messiah, his first coming during the spring. The fall festival symbolizes the second coming of the Messiah, which is the early or the former rain. And to understand this, let's go to the Bible again, Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 14. It says that I will give you the rain of your land in this due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou may gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. Okay, so that's important to understand that uh, the first rain, which is the, the rain that initiates during the fall, and then the latter rain is, is, is in, in the springtime. That thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thy oil. Okay? So that's very important to understand that. And let's turn to another scripture here. Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning... In verse 24, it says, Neither say in thy heart, let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth rain both the former and the latter in his season. So again, he gives the rain both in the former, which is in begins in the fall, the fall festivals, and the latter, which is the spring festivals, in his season. He reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Okay, and in Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, states this, it says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, okay, 
so that's moderately. And the former rain that begins the, the fall festivals, remember, and then he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. So that tells you right there the Bible de definition, the latter rain. The latter rain occurs in the first month. So in Joel chapter 2, verse 23, it says the latter rain begins in the first month. So if the latter rain begins in the first month, then the former rain must begin during the seventh month or around the seventh month. Okay? All right. Uh, and then Hosea chapter 6, which is a pretty interesting scripture to prove that the work of the Messiah involves two comings. Uh, Hosea. Yeah, chapter 6, if I can find it here. Where are you, Hosea? Chapter 6. And verse 3. Well, let me um, read verse 1 first, because you can tell that this is messianic, uh, and this is a real good proof text uh, for my fellow Jewish brethren uh, to, again, prove to them that uh, the Messiah has already come. And the Messiah's name is Yeshua Messiah, or Jesus Christ. Anyway, Hosea 6, verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and the third day he will raise us up and, and we shall live in his sight. And many prophetic teachers teach that the two days is talking about the, the 2,000 years and then um, the gap of 2,000 years uh, from the first century to now, and then the third day represents the millennium. He will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Verse 3, Then shall we know, and this is a continuation of thought here, Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. So it's making a a uh, metaphoric uh, or a comparison with his coming as the latter and former rain into the earth. Okay, again, he says, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain into the earth. So that one verse right there tells us that the Lord, who we understand here in this context, has to be the Messiah. Because God the Father comes to us through the Messiah. Uh, again, he says, And he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. The latter rain period is the, the spring festivals, and the former rain period is the fall festivals. So in that one verse, when you combine all the scriptures together, tells you that the Messiah will come two times. That's an incredible scripture. But anyway, the climatic pattern in Israel, Palestine, consists of rainfall happening between November and March. And so let's go over this again in Matthew chapter 9. I already read that. Matthew 7. Now, during this time period of uh, sowing, God is sowing, okay, there's going to be few people at first that's going to get it. As he as he explains here in Matthew chapter seven, all this is going to lead up to the last great day. To the, I'm just trying to 
to build a foundation to lead up to that, and I will explain that here in this Bible study. Please hear me out. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, says, Enter ye into the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many, and he's talking about the gate that's associated with the temple, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and, and narrow is the way which leads into life, and few there be that find it. And he's, of course he's talking about in, in this age of 2,000 years, very few people are going to actually really obey God fervently. fervently. Okay? And if the gospel is going to be to the poor, uh, that that's definitely accurate. Because usually people that are poor or have a spirit of being poor, in other words, willing to help the poor, those individuals are more receptive to God's word than, than are the rich. And, and that's clearly explained in Matthew chapter 19, when he states that it's easier, it's much easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle, and you know that a human being can't go through the eye of a needle and enter the kingdom of God. So he's telling it's almost impossible, almost impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. However, he did state it was possible. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. He says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sows good seed in his field. There we go again, the sowing, the agricultural concept to the holy days here. Verse 25, But while men slept, his enemy came and, and sowed tares, or planted tares, among the wheat, and went his way. Verse 26, But when... The blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So, let's picture this in your mind. Uh, the, the seeds are planted and they're starting to grow fruit. Verse 27. So the servants of the house, and then the enemy uh, came. And it says his enemy came and sowed tares along the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the tares grew along with the wheat. Verse 27, So the servants of the household came and, and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence came the tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Will thou then that we go and gather them up? And he said, No, that not while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let them both grow together. And this, this is picturing that 2,000 year time. Let them both grow together unto the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn, which is symbolic of the festival of tabernacles, so called during this time. All the harvest is gathered into the barns. Okay, so let's get the interpretation of this by Jesus Christ himself. In verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Verse 37, he answered and said to them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. So that's the Messiah. Here's the Messiah. He soweth the good seed. Verse 38, The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the tares are the children of the wicked one. Verse 39, The enemy that sows them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world. 
And this harvest is symbolic of gathering all the harvest and putting into his barns. The harvest that, of course, uh, I mean, the, the, what, what qualifies as the harvest is, of course, the wheat that's going to be gathered into the barn. Verse 39, the enemy that sold them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. And therefore the tares are gathered and burnt in the fire. So shall it be in the end of, the, of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angel and shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth, which is symbolic of destruction. And that scripture is found in Psalm 112, verse 10, that describes the weeping and gnashing of teeth that they're going to dissolve away. And then verse 43, this is where I want to be at, and I'm sure you want to be at. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who have ears to hear, let him hear. And I agree, let him hear that. Then Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning 26 to 27. So is the kingdom of God as, it, as if a man... So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring and grow up. He does, he knoweth not how. He doesn't know how it happens, but it happens. Okay. And for the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. All right, so he's comparing that to, uh, again, the harvest, the, the reaping of um, people that are strong spiritually and that through their their works and showing God that, that they do believe him by what they do, they uh, get God's approval to enter the kingdom of God. In Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14, beginning in, in verse 14, it states, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat upon, like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So it's full of fruit here. And he sat on a cloud, thrusting the sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So this symbolizes the resurrection. I know some people are saying this doesn't, but uh, in, in all the other scriptures that I read you, this has to be talking about the resurrection when he is um, gathering up the fruit. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over the fire, and cried with a loud uh, cried with a loud voice, a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now this is talking about fruit that's not so hot here. <laughs> Verse 19, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even into the horses' bridles, by a space of a thousand six hundred forelongs. And this is really a a abbreviated version of uh, Revelation chapter 19. So that's what that is. But that's talking about the 
the uh, the tar is being burnt up or, or being destroyed. In Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 39, it says, Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, so this is around the time when they gather up the fruit of the land, they gather up all of it, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Shabbat, on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath, and we're going to get into that in a few minutes, um, what the eighth day is all about. I just want you. I just want to give you a clear picture here. And then, James chapter five. James chapter five, beginning in verse seven, says, "Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it, until he receive the early." And the latter rain, okay? So the early rain, the early rain is the former rain, which happens uh, during the fall festivals, and the latter rain, of course, is during the uh, the spring festivals. Okay. So uh, the harvest is the end of the world, according to Christ's interpretation here. The end of the world is when the Messiah comes back to rule the earth, and this is found in Revelation chapter 19. And twenty. Now, Messiah will fulfill Yom Teror, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and Shemini Atzeret in the future. Isaiah chapter eleven in the Book of Revelation pictures fulfillment of these fall holy days of Elohim. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter eleven. I wanted to turn there last week, but you know I do have time to do it now because I added an extra ninety minutes to this program. Isaiah chapter eleven for for today anyway for this Bible study. So let's look. This is a beautiful chapter here but this is the the uh, describing the the work of the messiah at his second coming and there shall come forth a, a actually begins with uh, his, his spring work and then it talks about his fall work uh, his um, work in the fall is symbolized by the fall festivals so isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots talking about yeshua messiah here and the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked." And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, and their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den, or the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Let me repeat that one. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, why would God say that if, as people claim, that the gospel has been preached around the world? No, it has not. The gospel will be preached around the world at this time. 
of when the Messiah comes back, the whole gospel will, everyone will know who God is. They will know who the true God is. Verse 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. And the reason why, colon, continue to thought, because the earth shall be full, or for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the reason why it's going to be peace. Verse 10, and in that day shall there be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek. The, the, the Gentiles are going to seek the Messiah. And the, and the rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand, set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Isaiah, which is in the Middle East. Uh, Isaiah is symbolic of Babylon or Iraq today. And from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, which is around Iraq as well, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations that shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the spurs of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim, Ephraim represents Christians, ladies and gentlemen, shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah. The Christians shall not envy the Jews, and the Jews shall not vex or uh, cause problems for Christians. <laughs> so, But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty hand shall shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. And there shall be a highway from the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Isaiah, like as it was to Israel on the day he came up out of the land of Egypt. So this is indicating there is going to be some captivity going on in the Middle East. And Ephraim, if you need a definition of who Ephraim is, I'll tell you who Ephraim is. Ephraim is Christians, but geographically, these Christians live in the United States, Canada, countries in Northwestern Europe, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa. That's where they, they are geographically. And, of course, anyone that does accept Yeshua Messiah as a Messiah, as the Christ, is also considered a part of Ephraim. Ephraim are the ten lost tribes of Israel. Judah consists of Levi and the Jews. And for proof of this, Please go to Britam, B-R-I-T-A-M dot org, B-R-I-T-A-M dot org. Again, B as in boy, R-I, T as in Tom, A-M dot org to get exhaustive information that is free. You can get his books. I recommend you get his books, but you don't have to to prove and understand that Ephraim represents what I just told you. We are a part of God. We are Israelites. We are Hebrews. That's what we are. So anyway... A Hebrew is not a Jew. <laughs> Hebrews are Israelites, and they are part of the tribes of Israel, which are 12. So anyway, a summary of the Messiah's work. Let's understand that again. What, what, what is his work? What, what, was he, what did he come to earth to do? And there's simple scriptures that explain this. John chapter 1, verse 29 says, the next day John see of Jesus coming into him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which is symbolic of the Passover, which taketh away the sins of the world. That covers everything, all the feast days and what they represent. 
And then in 1 John, to get specific here, to really get specific, 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. In him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth have seen him, neither known. Uh, whosoever sinneth have not seen him, neither known him. Verse 8. This is the scripture I wanted to get to. 1 John 3, verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That is the ultimate reason why the Messiah was manifested. The Word of God was manifested in the flesh to destroy the works of the devil. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Titus 2, verse 14. It says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem... Well, let me look at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So, again, for people who say we shouldn't do any works, well, the reason why he did all this, as I explained to you in, in the Day of Atonement uh, Bible study, he sacrificed himself so that it would purge our conscience from dead works, so that we would do good works and be zealous about it. Uh, Titus 2, verse 14, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So don't let anyone deceive you and tell you that uh, being a, a Christian or a believer means that you don't have to do anything. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. All right, so let's let's go over the sequence again in the remaining 35 minutes I have, and then I'll finally get to um, what the last great day on the eighth day represents in a little more detail. So again, let's let's focus on this sequence here. It's very important. The Passover represents the Messiah's death and mankind's deliverance through him. The door of immortality is open again to all of mankind, and as I explained that. Uh, Immortality was always there. It's just that Adam and Eve messed things up for us, unfortunately. Yom Habikarim, or the day of the wave sheaf offering of the first fruits, represents Yeshua being the first to rise from the dead. Shavuot is the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Messiah's followers so that the Torah or the law of God or the doctrines of God can be obeyed. This will be fulfilled in a mighty way when the Messiah comes again, as Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32 reveals. Now, again, you have a gap of almost 2,000 years, four months, between Shavuot and Sukkot. It's a gap of almost 2,000 years symbolically. God, through the Holy Spirit, is sowing and reaping true believers to rule with him in the kingdom of God. Now, for proof of that, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearance. 
So we're all going to receive crowns for those who are believers. Are going to receive crowns and rule with him. Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 16 to 17. States, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and his children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be, and here's the condition though, if so be that we suffer with him that we may that we may be also glorified together. Verse 17, repeat this again. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also, that we may be also glorified together. If so that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Let me repeat this. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, starting in uh, verse 2. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 1. Yeah, starting in verse 2. Actually, verse 6. Revelation 1, verse 6. And he has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father to be glory and dominion forever and ever. So that that is our, our destiny as well, ladies and gentlemen, to be kings and priests of God and of Christ. So we're going to serve the Father and the Messiah or the Son. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 26 to 29. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power. To him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I receive of my Father. So we're going to be given power to rule over the nations, just like the Father gave him power. And I will give him the morning star, he that have an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So this is a message to all the churches, not just a particular church error, but all the churches. I know it sounds incredible, but it's true, ladies and gentlemen. God is, he's the real Santa Claus, as I tell my son. Revelation chapter 3, and he's hes the righteous Santa Claus. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 21 to 22. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. And again, he states, he that has an ear, let him hear. In other words, listen to what he's saying here what the Spirit has said unto the churches. So this is a message to all the believers of God. Church means, uh, ecclesia means an assembly, a congregation of people that come to worship God. Not a church building or a 501c3 organization. Okay, over in Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse 4 to 6, Revelation 20, verse 4 to 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned. They lived, and they also reigned. So they lived, 
and they also reigned again. Let me repeat. They lived and they reigned with the Messiah a thousand years. Verse 5. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection occurs during the time of the Festival of Tabernacles. Blessed and holy is he that have part in the first resurrection. On such the second death have no power, but they shall be priests of God, not only priests of God, but also priests of the Messiah, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay? So the thousand-year period is pictured by Sukkot, or the Festival of Tabernacles. And then Daniel chapter 7. For you Jews listening, if there are any Jews listening, Daniel chapter 7 also pictures a time where the kingdom is going to be given over to the saints. So this is not just a New Testament idea. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 17, says, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth, but in verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Forever, even forever and ever. So the saints are going to receive the kingdom. The kingdom of this world, all the kings of this world is going to be handed over to the saints. With the Messiah leading over the saints. Verse 22, until the ancients of days come and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. So judgment is going to be given to us. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Again, that's a picture of Sukkot. All right. And then verse 26 to 28. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So again, even the Old Testament proves that the kingdom will be given over to the saints and there will be rulership. That's the reason why we're suffering. That's the reason why Abel uh, suffered and, and all the way to all the other righteous people that are spoken of in Hebrews chapter 11. But in Hebrews chapter 11 it states this. This is a very significant scripture. Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about Moses and Abel and, and Enoch and so forth. And it, and it says here that all of them Verse 39, and wait, let me um, read uh, what it states here about the suffering here. Verse 36 of Hebrews chapter 11, And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yes, more of a bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder. Uh, that's Isaiah, he got sawn asunder according to Jewish tradition. Were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. So, True believers, the world is not even worthy of them being in the world. Uh, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Verse 39, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. What's the promise? The promise is eternal life. Verse 40, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. So none, none of the patriarchs, none of them, have been made perfect yet. They don't have their spiritual bodies yet. This is proof of that. Verse 40, God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Okay? So I just wanted to point that scripture out that uh, the great multitude that's found in Revelation chapter 7 is the great harvest that will be gathered into the kingdom of God in the 21st century. And it talks about this great harvest here. 
And these are those that came out of tribulation. Revelation chapter 7. And it states uh, here. After this I behold and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, the throne symbolizing uh, God the Father, and then before the Lamb, clothed with their white robes and palms in their hands. That palms in their hands are symbolic of the festival of tabernacles. For proof of that, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Verse 40, uh, verse 39. And also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Shabbat, on the eighth day shall be a Shabbat. And you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now you go back here, and it states that uh, the great multitude that no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, praising the Lord, just like it commands you to do during the Festival of Tabernacles. This symbolizes the cult. Verse 10, And cry with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto them, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, his temple no doubt in heaven and in earth, and during the millennium. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, which is uh, an allusion to the great last day, which will be talked about here shortly in detail. Okay, and in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. It says, Another parable put forth, he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, again, the planting concept again, which indeed is the least of all seeds. What did I tell you about Matthew chapter 7, where uh, during his age, before the tribulation, before the destruction, uh, there's not going to be too many people that's going to listen to God. But as I explained to you, what happens? The great multitude, and how did the, how did the great multitude become a great multitude? Well, because they were punished during the tribulation, and they came out of tribulation. Okay, so prior to the tribulation, there's not going to be that many people really taking God seriously. But when they get spanked, and that's what I call the tribulation, it's a great spanking. That's when a lot of people will wake up. All right, and in verse 32 he says, "Which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs." And how do they grow? through their trials, through, through being punished. That's how they grow, all right? And become of a tree so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. And that's what you see happening here in the book of Revelation. The seed being punished, it starts to grow through the great tribulation, and it becomes 
so great a number that is symbolic of this tree. All right, and that's what the kingdom of God is like. The the fall during the time of the fall, that's when all, the the entire amount of the harvest will be gathered. And during the time from spring until fall is is an accumulation of all of the harvest. And that's what's going on in these 2000 years right now. The beginning part of the harvest, uh, very few were gathered, but toward the latter end of the harvest, toward the uh, the former rain, toward that time, which Christ said that would be the end of the world, there's going to be a lot of people that's going to be accepting the Messiah. Unfortunately, it's going to be in a context of suffering and great wrath. But that's the way people respond to God, unfortunately. And this is from uh, from Abel, which is symbolic of the spring harvest all the way to the fall time when the harvest is all gathered in. So the harvest begins in the spring, but during the spring and during the summer and during the fall, that's when all the harvest is gathered. So that harvest can be put into the barn or enter into God's kingdom. And that's symbolic of, of these 2,000 years now that we're that we're going through right now. Of course, the patriarchs is included along with that. And that's why I, I, I stated Abel, as proved by Hebrews chapter 11. I just read that scripture to you. Now, these believers, here are the key characteristics. This is something you need to really understand. The key characteristics of a true believer. It's found in Matthew 5, verses 3 to 16, and Luke 6, verses 20 to 26. And I'll just briefly go over them. They're poor in spirit, and they're physically poor. Poor, you can be rich and still have a poor frame of mind. In other words, you care about people. There's not that many rich people in the world that are like that, but there are a few. So a characteristic is, is they're poor in spirit and physically poor. They mourn. They mourn for people's sins, their own sins, and they, and they mourn, and they feel very, they're, they're, they're people of grief. They don't like to see wickedness. But when they see wickedness, they, they cry and they mourn and, and they pray that God will bring his kingdom. They are meek. They're humble. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're pure in heart. They're also peacemakers. Now, another scripture, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Notice it, say, it doesn't say that they hunger and thirst for, for food and water. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They really, are, they really, really desire the word of God. That that's one of the characteristics also of a believer, and of course these believers are persecuted. Now Yom Teror is the day; it, it pictures the seven trumpet plagues listed uh, in Revelation chapter eight, nine, and Revelation eleven, verse fifteen to nineteen. I don't have time to go over those scriptures specifically, but Yom Teror, or the festival of of trumpets, pictures the seven trumpet plagues listed or revealed in Revelation chapter eight. 9 in Revelation 11, verse 15 and 19. The seventh trumpet announces the Messiah's return with the blast of the shofar. He does not literally return on this day. It's just an announcement that his return is imminent. Again, this is found in Revelation chapter 8, 9 in Revelation 11, verse 15 and 19. Yom Kippur represents the national atonement coming to the entire tribes of Israel, which includes the tribes of Judah and Levi as all the tribes recognize the Messiah and repent. As far as the Jews is concerned, they will finally accept him as their Lord and Savior, and that he is the Messiah. 
as far as Christians are concerned, they realize that the Messiah that they thought they knew, they didn't. The true Messiah was Jewish, and that this Jewish Messiah expects them to keep the law, that the law was not nailed to the cross. What was nailed to the cross was the incorrect interpretations of the law, which is found in Judaism, also in Christianity. Um, currently, most Jews don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, and Christians, Ephraim and the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel, they believe in a counterfeit Yeshua, as I just mentioned, that destroyed the Torah and removed it by dying on the cross. Both Jews and Christians will realize who the Messiah is one day in the future. Plus, this day represents the process of separating the righteous from the wicked, which will be initiated when the Messiah lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, as, as uh, Zechariah 14 states, and will end after the great white throne judgment that is found in Revelation chapter 20. So the scriptures that talks about Yom Kippur is Revelation chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. Revelation chapter 15 and 16, which describes the wrath of God. And Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. So cult, the festival of tabernacles, represents all of mankind worshiping the Lord from Jerusalem. The Messiah and the saints will sow or plant peace on the earth and the Holy Spirit will be available to all of mankind. The Father will dwell with all of mankind through his Son, Yeshua Messiah, during this time period. Who knows, he may even visit earth. It's not revealed, but I know that he's going to dwell with us through his Son during the thousand-year period. Now, uh, Revelation 20, verse 4 to 15, covers the, the festival of Sukkot and what it means. Now, Shemini Atzeret. This day is symbolic, and this is what I'm going to talk about here in a little more in detail in the remaining 16 minutes I have. A new heaven and a new earth is created. Death is destroyed, and there will be no more sin. The Father will bring heaven to earth and, and won't dwell with us through the Messiah, but actually he's going to come personally, and we're going to see him along with the Messiah. Okay, so the Father will bring heaven to earth and will personally dwell with all of mankind on the earth. This is revealed in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So let's go over here briefly what the last great day or the eighth day truly represents. Now, let's turn to 1 John chapter 3 again. And I'm trying to break this down. I can go into further detail with this, but the purpose of this, these Bible studies, is to give you a foundation to build upon. Perhaps if I have time in the future, I'll go over each day in detail, maybe have several Bible studies on one day. But right now, it's important for you to understand what these holy days mean that they picture the, the work of the Messiah and that you should be keeping these holy days. And if you need help with that and need some additional information on how to keep them, please email me at canard at mercifulserviceofgod.com. Again, my email address is canard at mercifulserviceofgod.com, and I'll be glad to give you some detailed specific information and recommend certain books to help you keep these days. This is very important. First uh, John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. It says, He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. So from the, the beginning of the creation of the earth, he sinned. That's what he's saying. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. All right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 describes how that happens. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 21 to 28. 
For since by man came death, so by man came death, of course the devil influenced man or mankind. For since by man came death, by man also the resurrection of the dead. So that describes again the the work of the of the Messiah. Um, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. This describes again all the work of the Messiah again. Um, verse 24, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority. And this is the, the another end that we need to focus on as two ends, the end of the man trying to rule himself and then the end totally of sin. Verse 24, Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, verse 26, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So the last enemy that the Messiah is going to destroy is death. And this is the reason why he was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. His, the, the devil's greatest work is the fact that he created death. And so, so Christ is going to destroy death, and death is the devil. Verse 27, for he had put all things under his feet, but when he said all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. So it's stating here that Messiah has a boss, and that boss is God the Father. And I don't think that's stressed enough in Christianity that the Messiah has a God as well. Matter of fact, in John chapter 20, he states this. Sure, he's a part of God, and that makes him God, but he's not the only true God that's revealed in John chapter 17, verse 3, to be the Father. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 17 says, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and your God. Okay? So that's a pretty plain statement there. And, and then in, uh, in Revelation, he says uh, something similar. Revelation chapter uh, 2. Okay, let's see if I can find it here. Here we go. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. says, He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God. Okay, here we go again. He's, he's stating my God how many times here? Uh, three times. And the pillar of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. So, obviously, Christ has a God. He is not the eternal, almighty God that was here before anything else. Matter of fact, he states here, and this may sound incredible because you may never have been taught this before, but it's pretty plain here what he says here uh, in Revelation uh, chapter, what is it, 3, I think. Yeah. 
Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So that's a plain statement right there that he states that he was the beginning of the creation of God, ladies and gentlemen. So I'm, that's a pretty plain statement there. So I'm just reading out of the Bible. So First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Verse, chapter 15, starting in verse, uh, right, in verse 28, says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, the Almighty God, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That is the goal. God wants to dwell in all of us, not just in the Messiah. And when he comes back, that's what will happen. In Revelation chapter 21, I mean, he's going to dwell literally with us, not just spiritually. Revelation chapter 21. So we're going to enjoy his presence just like the Messiah is enjoying his presence at his right hand right now in heaven. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth was passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, or the house of God, is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So that's God himself speaking and saying he's going to wipe away all the tears from, from our eyes, and there should be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither should there be any more pain. And then there's people saying there's going to be people living forever and ever in pain. Not according to this scripture. And then in verse 14 of Revelation 20, it says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So death was destroyed in the lake of fire. And that's what the Messiah will do. He will destroy death. And verse 15 says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And verse 4 says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So that's what Shemini Hazaret really pictures, perfection. Everyone will be perfect. Everything that's created will be perfect. The world and the universe will be the way it was before sin entered into the universe through the devil. That's what Shemini Atzeret pictures. It pictures the beginning of the way it should have been in the beginning. So that's what the pictures. And then Revelation 21 and 22 especially talks about how beautiful it's going to be. How beautiful it's going to be. And what are we going to do? Well, Paul alludes to what we possibly will be doing here in Romans chapter uh, 8 he states uh, 
verse 20 says, For the creature, it means creation, for the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected in the same hope, because the creature of the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travaileth and pain together until now. But not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for adoption, the redemption of our body, in other words, to be transformed into immortal so that we can uh, create. And, and all those planets that you see out there, with they look decayed and, and, and corrupted. We are going to, to create, and no doubt, we will expand God's kingdom. The universe is vast. And in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, for us a child is born, here we go again, starting with Passover, and the son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and ending with uh, Sukkot. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, and peace shall there be no end. So God's kingdom is going to expand throughout the universe. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order and to establish it with judgment and with justice for henceforth forever and ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. But one in a certain place testifies, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him, or allowed him to come and visit mankind? Thou made him a little lower than the angels, and that word is translated Elohim in, 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 uh, from where it was quoted from. Uh, thou, in other words, you've made him a little lower than God. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, or a mighty one, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in, in subjection under his feet, for that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not yet put under him. So mankind's destiny is to rule over the entire universe with God and the Messiah leading mankind. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than Elohim for the suffering of death, or God, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of the favor of God should taste death for every man. So he, taste, he tasted death for every man. So that that man or woman would have an opportunity to never taste death again by obeying God, by doing good works. Of course, we don't get saved by our works, but our works prove to God that we believe him. And that will convince him to allow us to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 10, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. We have to suffer to enter the kingdom of God. That's only fair, because we, we don't even deserve to live. And God gave us his chance to live through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Messiah. Okay, so that is our potential, ladies and gentlemen. We, our potential is to rule with God the Father and the Messiah at his right hand. And we are going to rule together as one happy God family or Elohim family. He's going to have children. And he's going to rule with these children. And we are going to have a happy time. And we're going to create 
Perhaps we will create other human beings, but these human beings will be perfect. They will not be in the, get in the situation that Adam and Eve got into. That is our destiny. That is our hope, and that's what will happen in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, you have a pleasant, pleasant work week beginning Sunday, and I will speak to you next week. Take care, and may God bless you and keep you. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse.